You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We now take our Bibles and read two passages in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and chapter 3. First then, Genesis chapter 1, I read you the verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We turn to chapter 3 and read the verses 6 through 16. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. We turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We begin reading at verse 8. And read through to the end of chapter 3. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. 
she must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an office overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, a temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how did he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you may know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world was taken up in glory. I proclaim to you the word of our God. As we could read it from Genesis and Timothy, as the church has summarized it, and we together confess it in Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, who took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He's our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, time and time again we confess with the Apostles' Creed 
that our Savior was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We do that in a culture, in a society that has the lowest birth rate ever. We confess that our Savior was born of Mary, who was in turn betrothed to Joseph. Point being that Jesus received a place in a family. We make this confession in a society, in a culture, that sees the deterioration of the family. Yet the scripture congregation makes it very clear that the holy conception and birth of Jesus Christ was a profound blessing for the people of God and so for the world. The scripture is equally clear. Receiving children today is also a profound blessing. The family, such a gift of God, Yet, we receive children, have our families in this society. And that brings us challenges. And so, it needs its encouragement. The encouragement we need in receiving children and in raising children is found in the gospel of the birth of Jesus Christ. So I summarize the sermon this afternoon with this theme, Jesus' birth assures sinners of the privilege of having children. I ask your attention for three points. The first is the mandate to multiply. The second is the gospel of Jesus' birth. And the third, the purpose of the family. Brothers, sisters, how did the first person get on this earth? And you know the answer. Scripture is plain in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. That's how the first man got here. God went to work. How did the second person get here? Again, you know the answer. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he was sleeping, says the scripture, God took one of the man's ribs and closed at the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib be taken out of the man. God at work. How did the third human being get here? And again, you know the answer. Genesis chapter 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And so it is too with the fourth and the fifth human being, etc. God still at work. 
be at this time in a different way than with the first or with the second. Intriguing. For God was able to do endlessly, repeatedly, what he did with making the first man. He was mighty again and again and again to gather dust from the ground, shape it into the form of a man, and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And so create more men for planet Earth. And God was mighty to cause the deep sleep to fall on each subsequent man he would make, take from him a rib, and form a woman. For God, that's no problem. Yet it pleased the Lord in his sovereign wisdom to use a different means to multiply mankind on the face of the ground. The result, we understand, is that the entire human race, at the end of the day, is one big family. Not so many disjointed individuals, but all descendants of the same original parents. Why, though, was it that the Lord God was pleased to have things done in this manner? That we need to understand, congregation, that this is the ordinance of God because of what he said already in the beginning, chapter 1 of Genesis. It's a portion we read together after God had created all there was to be made in the first five and a half days of creation, the first part of the sixth day God made the animals, then says Genesis 1.26, God said, let's make man in our image, in our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. There was man's task to image God, to reflect what God was like, The point then is that other creatures of God should see from man's behavior what kind of a God there was in heaven. The specific behavior man was to carry out and so show what God is like was in ruling over God's world. That's Genesis 1.26. Let's make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over. Through their ruling over the fish of the sea and the birds, the air and the livestock and all the creatures that move on the ground, etc. In their ruling over, men should reflect what God is like. It's man's responsibility to rule well over God's world. Reflect God. We understand the Lord God made two people, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve. But those two would never be able to rule over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals of the ground. The world's far too big for that. And that's to say that these two would not be able to image to all the animals, to all creation, what God is like. 
And their congregation is the reason why God, when he created man, said in chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then add, rule over the fish of the sea. By multiplying, Adam and Eve would ensure there are more image bearers of God on planet earth who in turn, by the way in which they rule over creation, could reflect to all creation what God was like. That makes it clear that the command to multiply in Genesis 1 was not a choice Adam and Eve could make, a choice to obey. It was a command. And they were responsible to obey. Responsible to obey it for the greater glory of God. He should be imaged in all the world. We are to note, this is the first command God gave to the human race. And nowhere in the Bible has God revoked this command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and in so doing, rule, even over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, let alone the animals on the ground. It's true, since God gave that instruction in Genesis 1, the human race has fallen into sin. And with the fall into sin, God has voiced his curse over the human race. In relation to the command to be fruitful and multiply, the curse of God is formulated in Genesis 3, verse 16. To the woman God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. We realize well that that curse on our fall into sin has made the command to be fruitful and multiply immeasurably more difficult to obey. But it doesn't take away from the command itself. There is pain in childbearing, as in the hours of labor. But the pain the Lord refers to in Genesis 3.16 isn't limited to the hours of labor. It's also the pain that comes before the discomfort of pregnancy, be it the nausea, be it the tiredness, and perhaps even the pain that comes with childlessness, being barren. The pain of childbearing goes to the other side of childbirth too, the months and the years of raising the child. That too brings its own heartbreak and its own agony. In pain you'll bring forth children indeed. And what shall we say of the challenges of periods and menopause? It's all included in the curse that the Lord voiced. Then children... Yes, it's lovely to receive if the Lord gives. 
But we also all are well aware that children are sinful. And parents are equally sinful. Children and parents by nature selfish. In that invariably brings its clash in the home. The pain of raising the children. So, when Eve received her second child, she gave him a name, Abel. Interesting name. It's the Hebrew word for vanity. Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the Hebrew has the word Abel there. Why would a mother call her second child Abel? Vanity. Might that be because she was experiencing Cain in his terrible twos? Who can say? But it catches something of the frustration, of the pain of parenting. And this struggle, this pain, is something all parents experience. And so, congregation, it's not so surprising that sin-filled people use technology to delay or to limit the arrival of children. Children can get in the way of your plans, of your career, of your good sleep. Given the pain there is in raising children, it's tempting for Christians too to make use of the opportunity our times gives to us. Indeed, it isn't surprising that young people get prompted to think in terms of career instead of in terms of parenting. The emphasis in education lies on career. But the command, congregation, of Genesis 1 verse 28 remains. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals. It's a creation ordinance, never revoked, still in force today. But the times in which we live, sends us its conflicting messages. Multiply? It does get in the way of our own plans. And so we need encouragement. And that's our second point. The gospel of Jesus' birth. After the fall into sin, Jesus, sorry, God said to the woman, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll bring forth children. That's Genesis 3.16. But congregation, before Jesus spoke those words of 3.16, our Lord spoke the words of 3.15. Said God to the serpents in the hearing of the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Wonderful. The same woman 
who will experience pain in childbearing is told that through childbearing and childrearing, salvation will come into the world. Salvation through pain for the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. What is striking here, beloved, is that it's the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. The Lord does not speak here of the seed of the man. That's not to say the man will not be involved in bringing forth the next generation. He most certainly is involved. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And not only that, the Lord God speaks to Abram in Genesis chapter 18. And he says, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. The man most certainly is involved in the procreation of the children and in the raising, the education, the training of the children. And yet when the Lord speaks in Genesis 3 about the seed that will crush the head of the serpents, God sovereignly excludes the man and speaks only of the seed of the woman. And we can say why that's simple, that's because, and our thoughts go forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior had to be true man and true God. True God from the Holy Spirit and true man through the Virgin Mary. Yes, yet congregation, <coughs> there is more involved here. I draw to your attention that in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God gave to man the position of headship. Genesis 2 verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, not the woman. She comes in second place. After the Lord God had formed the man, God put the man in the garden all by himself and told him by himself to work it and take care of it. And God added, the man could help himself to every tree of the garden except the one over there. If you eat from it, you will surely die, said God. And only after God had put the man in the garden with these instructions, only afterwards did he form the woman from the rib of the man. And then, the Lord God did not speak to the woman and put her in the garden beside the man and say, listen, now you go and take care of the garden with the man and help yourself to every tree, but not to that tree. It was left to the man to tell these things to the woman. And the whole point of it is that he is the head and she is his help. That is the ordinance of God. It turns out that Adam and Eve lived together in that relationship. He, the head, she, is help, lived together in the garden for, I do not know how long. 
But the day came when the serpent came to the garden and spoke to to the woman, not to the man, challenged her. Did God really say you can't eat of all the trees? And this led to that, and she took of the fruit of the forbidden tree, and she ate it. And the scripture says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. What ought he to have done? He ought to have told her, no, you're not to eat of that tree. He should have reminded her, of God's instruction in Genesis 2, any tree will do, dear, but not that one there. He was the head. But he faltered too. And because he faltered, though the head, the buck stops with him, he's responsible. He did not rule as he ought. And so the Lord, when he speaks about the triumph of of the destruction of the head of the serpent, then the Lord speaks of the seed of the woman and not the seed of the man. The woman, to quote from Paul to Timothy, will be saved through childbearing. That's the ordinance of the beginning. And that is why, congregation, the day came when the Virgin Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit before she and Joseph came together. The scripture is emphatic in Luke chapter 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And that's remarkable. That God would exclude the man from begetting the Savior is one thing, and we can understand it. But then consistency should demand, is it not, that God exclude the woman also? For she sinned was the first to sin. And God was more than able to bring his son into the world in the same way as he brought the first man into the world. Formed from the dust of the earth a body in the shape of a man and calls his son to indwell that human. He was able, he was equally able to send his son directly from heaven to earth, even as he himself had come to visit Abraham, had dinner with Abraham and the two angels, and then walked and talked with Abraham. God could have sent his son to earth that way. But he didn't, congregation. In his wisdom and in his mercy, he was pleased to use the woman. Salvation through childbearing. And it needs to be fixed in our minds, male and female alike, that this is a delightful privilege. God would send his son to this earth in this way. For the human race, we need to remember, is one family. 
we all have one parent, Adam and Eve. And so we all need one Savior. A Savior who needs to be of the same flesh and blood as we are. Not a look-alike. Not one that God has parachuted in, but is not really of our DNA. And God was pleased then to send his son, despite the sin of man and woman, to send his son through a woman. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, became one of us, like nature with us, as the apostle to the Hebrews writes. And that congregation is why. The church can confess in Lord's Day 14 that the Son of God became human, took on himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. He became one of us. What an amazing thought. True eternal God who was with the Father in glory in heaven from all eternity. He, whom the Father created all things, became a baby, lay in a crib, had to be fed. He cried. He dirtied his diaper. He had to be bathed. He had teething problems. He, too, got a cold and the flu. And it wasn't always to his parents' liking. They wanted their sleep. They wanted their outings. But they experienced the pain God had spoken of in Genesis 3.16. Joseph and Mary experienced that pain in relation to baby Jesus. He who was true and eternal God. Can you imagine... It's all so mind-boggling. But their congregation is the glory of the way of redemption God has imagined for us, has prepared for us. The Son of God, true seed of David, like his brothers, like you and me in every respect. Yet he Without sin. True God he was and remained. True man he became through the Virgin Mary. This one, true God, true man, went to the cross of Calvary to take upon himself the the weight of sin. Our sin of Genesis 3, the fall into sin, to take on himself the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 4, etc. To take upon himself the sin of every parent and of every child. And he atones. That's to say, this seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. Crushed. Satan. So there is congregation deliverance for the people of God. 
It is as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace for mothers. And there is peace for fathers. And there is peace too for children. Where there is tension. Where there is conflict as sinner hits off against sinner in the home. There is, by the ordinance of God in Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sin. The renewing work of Jesus' Spirit. And so, peace with God. Tell me, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? That He's our mediator. Who? He who is true God and true man. One of us. This one. Our mediator, with his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Covers too all the sins I commit in the course of my life. It's all so rich. Then yes, pain remains in childbearing. Pain remains in childrearing. But, says the Apostle Romans 8, there is now, in the midst of the pain, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In fact, the Apostle continues, all things work for the good of those who love God, also receiving children, also raising children. Then there is pain in the home. Undoubtedly, but says Paul, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers nor height nor depth, not even the grief of a home and the sins of parents and children, not anything is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For by the grace of God, The curse is out of the pain of Genesis 3, verse 16. Out of the pain of bearing children, raising children. And that congregation is why the child of God can be joyful in pregnancy, joyful in giving birth, joyful in parenting the children God has given. Certainly there is pain. There is anguish. But childbearing, childrearing is such a privileged, privileged task in God's kingdom. Recall how the psalmist put it? Sons, says the psalmist, are a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward from him. Blessed is the man, he continues, whose quiver is full of them. And so it's clear. We're back to the command of Genesis 1. Be fruitful. Multiply. Increase in number and fill the earth. Subdue it. The curse of the fallen to sin. Why, that's gone. Today, man and woman can be fruitful again in God's kingdom. Bring forth children who in turn can image the Savior. How wonderful, how glorious the privilege. 
we understand. A consequence follows, and that's our third point, the purpose of the family. Is this to say, you will ask me, that the mother is to become a baby factory? My brothers, my sisters, that sort of language is so demeaning for the sisters. So demeaning of the privileged position God has given to the woman. Baby factory is not the language of Scripture. Let it never be heard from the mouth of a Christian. What does the Bible say? Be fruitful. Multiply. Increase in number. And what's the reason for multiplying? What's the reason for families? Large families? Why multiply? Said the Lord in Genesis 1, Fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. Why rule over them? So that you can image what God is like. To bring forth children is to bring forth image bearers of God into God's wonderful world. But image bearers need to be more than born. Image bearers need also to be raised. To know how to reflect God is not innate, is not instinct. But that is the task of the parents. Teach the children how to image God. There is the place, is the purpose, is the function of the family. And that becomes so clear, congregation, in the passage we read from 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's a passage in which the Apostle Paul tells Timothy what he wants man to do and what he wants the woman to do. The man, verse 8 of chapter 2, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, yet without anger. Why that command? The reason for that congregation is that back in Genesis 1, God had ordained that the human race rule over God's world. But in this fallen world, not everyone is has a position in society on an equal level with the next. What I mean is, some are set aside to be kings, to be rulers, and others are not. And those who are not can quickly feel as if they are but pawns, useless in the cogs of society. And the Lord says, no, no one is useless. All are called to image God. All are called to rule, whether you're a king or whether you're a serf. But how do you exercise your position as ruler? Says the apostle, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. 
Pray. Speak to God of the needs in society. Prayer is mighty to accomplish things. We understand if men are to pray, they need to think. They need to analyze, they need to understand the needs of society. This becomes then the way in which all men are to rule prayer in the family, in the church, in the home, personal prayer. And the woman, meanwhile, says the apostle, verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Not with braided hair or golds or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. What's his point? Simply this congregation, that the woman is not to spend her time in front of the mirror as if it's all about looks, but is to concentrate on good deeds, as is appropriate for women who profess to worship God. As the men would rule through prayer, though not only prayer, we understand that, the women follow the men's prayer with deeds. That's the reason why, because of that link, that's why Paul says in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her authority over man to be silent. He's the leader. And she's to take her cue from him. But what then are the good deeds that she's to do? And the apostle elaborates on that in verse 15. Women will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Saved through childbearing. And yet we understand. The point of salvation is not that through childbearing she'll work her way into heaven. Can't be the case because the apostle says in chapter 2 earlier in the piece that there is one Savior, Jesus Christ. But his point is, congregation, that salvation brings about gratitude and gratitude looks like something. What's gratitude look like? Why, it looks like obedience, obeying the law of God. But that includes obedience to the creation ordinance of Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and increase in number. And that's why the apostle talks about the woman being saved through childbearing. And it's not just the bearing of the children we understand, But it's the raising of the children entrusted to the family. And it's not just the mother who has to do the child raising too. That's with the father also. And what's this raising of the children all about? To prepare that next generation to to image God. To rule over God's world, over the birds of the air. Can you imagine and the fish of the sea, and the animals of the field, and so on, to rule over them in such a way as to image what God is like. 
That congregation is why chapter 2, verse 15, about women being saved by childbearing, is followed directly by chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his hearts on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. And then follow the qualifications for the overseer and the deacon. Tell me, congregation, where does a young man receive the desire to serve in God's church? For that matter, where does he receive the desire to serve in God's kingdom? Does that desire not come from the home? Is that not the role of the mother? Of course, with the father. But the woman saved through childbearing, through childrearing. To rule over God's world. How does she do that? Getting into the workforce? Or bringing forth the next generation? Children equipped to image what God is like in this world. And the answer speaks for itself. How vital then, congregation, how critical the role of the mother. Well did the poet once say, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, and it is true. Think about Canada. What does Canada need in 20 years from now, 30 years, 40 years? What do the churches need 20 years from now, 30 years, 40? What do the schools need? What does the community need? The answer is so obvious, is it not? What does the community need? Outstanding leaders. What does the school need? Teachers and school board members. What does the church need? Elders and deacons and ministers. Where will the elders and deacons and ministers, where were the teachers and school board members, where were the businessmen and the politicians that Canada needs 30 years from now, where do they come from? Congregation, they are laying in your cradles. They sit around your kitchen table. And if mothers do not do their bit, and yes, fathers too, then Canada will suffer in 30 years' time. And the churches will suffer in 30 years' time. Here is the vital, is the critical role of the family of the home in God's church gathering work in God making his kingdom come. The nation needs image bearers of God. The nation needs young boys and girls equipped to reflect what God is like. And you, parents, have the wonderful, have the privileged task of raising the next generation of God's little ones. Tell me, can you think of a more privileged task than that? That is why the Apostle says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes. And the apostle adds to Titus, gives him the instruction to tell the older sisters of the congregation to go and train the younger women, chapter 2, verse 4, to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so no one will malign the word of God. Here is the critical role of the home. Train the young people that they in turn can be diligent parents for your grandchildren. For the next generation of God's little ones, the kingdom of God needs it. The nation of Canada needs it. The churches need it. The Lord God, beloved, is not limited to using parents to bring forth the next generation of his children on this earth. He's mighty to do again what he did in Genesis 2 and form a man from the ground. He's mighty to do what he did in Genesis 2 and form a woman from the rib of a man. But that is not his pleasure. His pleasure is to use you. Privilege indeed. To bring forth children. To raise children. How wonderful. How wonderful to be so involved. And what do you think? If your God gives you such a critical, essential role in his kingdom, will he not give the strength and the satisfaction? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.